0: From the works of the law. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we come to this text on this Reformation Sunday, remembering how instrumental and foundational it was to the early reformers, but also how radical this text would have been to the church in Rome. And how radical it is for us to hear it even in our own context when we are drawn again and again to think that we can do something that proves to you that we are worthy of saving. So open up our eyes that we can see the radical nature of the good news of your gospel. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I don't know about you, but I love a good courtroom drama. Uh, I remember when Law & Order first premiered on NBC many, many years ago. Man, who didn't want to be Jack McCoy, right? That guy, he was cooler than cool. Or if I'm on a plane, often I will have a John Grisham novel. I love that uh, somebody after first service stopped me and said, oh, we love Perry Mason. And some of you are probably looking at me going, yeah, I'm more of a night court person myself. That That's kind of more my speed. Well, one of the things I love about kind of courtroom dramas is that you never quite know exactly what's happening. The the plot seems to twist and turn, and the outcome is usually not what you would expect it to be. The person that seems innocent at the beginning of the drama often is the person who is guilty at the end, and the person that you're absolutely sure is guilty, well, they turn out to be falsely accused. Sometimes the evidence just isn't as clear-cut as you might expect. In many ways, we are stepping into the middle of the Bible's version of law and order. Uh, What Paul is talking about here in Romans chapter 3 is based on a long-running conflict between God and his people. They've been engaged in a kind of legal battle since the time of the Exodus. God had established a covenant with his people, had established a legal and familial relationship with his people. And as part of that covenant, he had certain responsibilities to them and they had certain responsibilities to him. But almost immediately, even while they were still in the Exodus, before they had ever come into the promised land, they began pursuing other gods. They sought out other nations as covenant partners, looking to those other nations rather than God himself. Rather than trusting God's promise, they would trust the promise of another king or another people. And so through God's prophets, he brought Israel to court. And through God's prophets, he accused them of not being faithful, of not participating in that covenant relationship like they swore they would. And in a strange twist in the Old Testament, Israel had the audacity to countersue God. They accused God of not being faithful. They said, look at everything that's happening to us. You're the one who's not living up to your end of the bargain. And throughout the Old Testament, you see this struggle between God and his people played out. That's the foundation, that that conflict is the foundation for much of what Paul is writing in these early chapters of Romans. He begins in chapter 1 with a focus on the Gentiles, on people who are not part of ethnic Israel. They didn't have the Mosaic law. But he reminds the church in Rome that even their Gentile neighbors have the law of God written on their hearts, but instead of obeying it, they suppress it. And they exchange, Paul says in Romans 1, they exchange the glory of God for the images of men and beasts. And just when his Jewish audience is kind of shaking their fingers at their Gentile neighbors, saying, tsk, tisk," if only you knew better, Paul flips on them. He puts on the hat Of one of those old testament prophets he becomes a covenant prosecutor and he reminds his jewish audience that they have lots of special privileges as god's people but he surprises them he says you know you thought maybe you were going to sit in judgment of those gentiles you thought maybe having the law gives you some kind of special status some kind of special protection But you have also failed to obey the law, the law that was given to you as part of God's covenant people. And so instead of sitting as judge and jury, you are actually at the table with all of the other accused. You are also actually under the accusation of the law. This is why in chapter 3, verse 9, which we didn't print for you, but if you have your Bibles, you can see. Paul concludes that everyone is under sin. It's not just the Gentiles that you would think would be under sin. No, it's also the Jews who are in that special relationship with God. Both Jews and Gentiles are under sin, and that leads to the damning indictment that is read out over the court, verses 10 through 18. No one is righteous. No one understands. No one seeks God. No one does good. No one fears God. You might be here this morning and you're not particularly religious and you're thinking to yourself right now, you know, this is exactly why I don't spend any time at church. This is exactly why I don't have any time for you Christians. All you people do is get wrapped up in guilt and neuroses You don't need a God, you need a therapist. But the pursuit of a right standing, the pursuit of a right standing, what what the Bible calls righteousness or justification, that's an ever-present reality whether you're religious or not religious. See, maybe you're not religious this morning and you're here, but I want you to see that you seek to justify your existence in all kinds of ways. Maybe you're a parent who works too much and you're missing your children growing up. But you justify by saying, well, I'm doing everything for them so that they can have all of the advantages that I didn't have. Maybe you're an academic who's Constantly writing, constantly speaking, always looking for for new angles of research. Also, you can justify yourself before a tenure committee. Maybe you're an entrepreneur, always hustling, always looking for the next investment. But deep down, you know that it's not just an investment in your company, it's an investment in you. You're on the line who you are, you are trying to justify yourself. Playwright George Bernard Shaw said that he believed that every five years or so, everyone in the world should stand before a tribunal and justify their existence. He must have felt really good about himself. All of us are subject to the law's demands. You see, even if you don't really give any credence to God's law, there are all sorts of little L laws that you sit under. The laws of expectation, evaluation, judgment. And they all stand ready to condemn you if you don't measure up. Many of us here today are religious. We would say with great gratitude that we believe that we are forgiven by God and that God accepts us on account of Christ. But I think many of us struggle to show that. We often live as if we are laboring for a right standing before God. We often live contrary to what we say we believe. We say that we believe that God accepts us freely by His grace. And yet the way that we relate to God, the way that we relate relate to others, puts all of the pressure on us. We act like our standing with God is based on our victory over sin. Or on some ever-increasing level of holiness. We act like our standing before God or our standing in front of one another is based on who we are in church. Maybe the activities that we do or the the particular office that we hold or the volunteer position that we inhabit. Deep down, we're afraid. We're afraid that something in us, something about us, something that we do, that God's going to look at that And make his judgment, not looking at Christ. Well, to all of us, both the non-religious folks, the religious folks, all of us, the verdict is clear. Look at verse 19. Every mouth may be stopped. The whole world is held accountable to God. For by works of the law, whether those are religious works or social works, relational works, covenantal works, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now, we're all so busy trying to measure up against the law, whether it's the big L law or the little L laws, and yet Paul says all that the law does is show you that you're a sinner. Those who appeal to their own works in any way, shape, or form, whether those are the good deeds that you want to do, the the things that you think are are good for humanity, whether those works are spirit-wrought works of obedience, any kind of reliance on your work in any way, shape, or form is simply digging your own grave. The problem isn't the ceremonial laws. Some of you who know the book of Romans well will look at that passage in verse 20, the works of the law, and you'll say, well, isn't that like a specific thing that related to Israel's ceremonial life? Like the works of circumcision and Sabbath-keeping basically being faithful to the Torah. What's interesting here is it's everything. The problem isn't just the ceremonial laws that separate the Jew from the Gentile, but if you go back to Romans chapter 1 and read all the way up through Romans chapter 3, Paul is calling into condemnation the common human condition of idolatry and hypocrisy and self-righteousness. There isn't a division between Jew and Gentile. Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 13, it's not the hearers of the law, but the doers of the law that will be justified. Well, we get to this passage in Romans, and the bad news is really settling in. There are no doers of the law. We can't even live up to our own best hopes for ourselves. And if there are no doers of the law, then maybe there is no one who will ever be justified. Now, if this was a courtroom drama, at this point, the whole whole court would be silent. Everyone would be recognizing and realizing that suddenly they're guilty. All of humanity stands before the judge guilty And just as we're thinking that the handcuffs are going to go on, just as we're thinking that the bailiff is going to lead us out to our punishment, just as we're waiting to hear the door close behind us, there is a surprise announcement. Look at verse 21. But now, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, they bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Now, I know we want to jump up and down and shout and say, oh, praise the Lord. But before we get there, we've got to wrestle with a a phrase. This, This righteousness of God. Because I don't know about you, but anytime I think of the righteousness of God, that doesn't give me a warm feeling inside. The righteousness of God is a terrible thing if you are guilty of sin. Because if you are guilty and God is righteous, there's only one thing that that can mean, which is that you will be punished. If he were to exercise his righteousness... There would be no life after the fall. There would be no return after the exile. There would be no one saved on the last day. But Paul says that the manifestation of this righteousness, it's not the two by four from God that we've been expecting. No, it's actually the answer to our greatest need. Because the manifestation of this righteousness, it doesn't lead to wrath. It leads to salvation. Well, how does God do that? Well, it's not by ignoring his justice. It's not by turning a blind eye to our sin. Instead, he has sent his son to live his life under the law to live up to all of the small L and big L laws. And then, strangely and ironically, he would die as a lawbreaker. So he would be absolutely perfect in his life and then sit and hang on a cross where all lawbreakers were called to die. In this way, Paul says in verses 24 and 25, we are justified. We are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption. That's what Jesus is doing. Redeeming us from our slavery to sin. Verse 25, Jesus Christ whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. If you've been with us the last several weeks and we've been in 1 Samuel, you'll know that word propitiation because we've talked about the ark of the covenant and that place on top of the ark where Israel's high priest would atone for Israel's sin. It was called the mercy seat. It's the same word that's used here in Romans chapter 3. And what it means is not that God turns a blind eye to our sin. But that God allows every drop of his wrath to hit the mercy seat. That our sin, which has been building up, has been burst like a dam at the cross. And the wrath of God has been propitiated. It has been exhausted. There's no more water behind that wall. Every drop Has been poured out on Christ. Friends, that means that when we think about God, we don't think about a schizophrenic God, a God who struggles to balance his love and his righteousness. We don't think about a God who's trying to overcome some legal hurdle in front of him. No, God upholds his righteousness. And he doesn't have to condemn everyone to his wrath. This is Paul's gospel message. God freely justifies those who trust in Jesus Christ through the redemption that he himself accomplished in Christ in our place. Look again at verse 24. Do you notice how Paul like stacks these adverbs together? We are justified freely. We are justified by His grace. He's emphasizing here the fact that, our, that the whole act of God in our justification, it's, it's a free gift. Okay, well, Eric, you, you keep using that word, and I know it's in the Bible, but what exactly does it mean for us to be justified? Justification is a declaration. It's a declaration that God makes about a sinner. And he looks at the sinner as sinner and says, you now have a right standing in my court by a perfect right standing that is given to you by grace. When we talk about justification, we're not talking about a process of you becoming a better and better person of becoming more and more holy. We're not even just talking about the forgiveness of sins, as marvelous as that is. No, to be justified is to be forgiven of our sins and to be positively reckoned as righteous. Romans tells us that God justifies the ungodly, that God justifies the wicked, that God justifies his enemies. He meets you in your rebellion and in your sin, and he claims you as his own, and he says, you're mine, and everything that is Christ's is yours, and you are now in a different relationship to me than you ever thought possible. You who are guilty, you're actually innocent. You who were a rebel and an enemy... You're actually my friend and my son. Well, how do we do that? How do we move from that category of someone who is convicted by the law to someone who is the beneficiary of God's great work of salvation? Well, over and over in this passage, you can see it in verse 22, verse 25, verse 26, verse 27, verse 28, Paul says that it is by faith. To have something by faith means that it's not by something we do. And that's actually very interesting that Paul highlights that contrast. He says it's not, verse 27, by a law of works. And then verse 28, nor by works of the law. Now, Paul isn't just being cute, reversing different words here and mixing it up to sound poetic. A law of works is a universal constant. It's common to all of us. We all labor under a law of works. Just try going into work on Monday morning saying, oh, it's all of grace, and see how your boss feels. We all labor under a law of works. But Israel labored under the works of the law. Verse 28, those specific obligations that were connected to their covenant. So whether you're Jew or Gentile, the two categories of people that Paul has been addressing so far in this part of the letter, they are all declared righteous, not by what they do, but by faith. Faith is simply that empty hand that receives what God offers. Faith simply says, I agree, that's for me, and I'm going to trust that. The German reformer Martin Luther thought that Paul was so clear on this that we are justified by faith alone, not by works, that when he translated this part of the Bible into the German language, he inserted the word alone here in this verse. It's from Luther that we get our Reformation phrases like, Sola fide, faith alone. But what's fascinating is Luther isn't the only one to see and understand and interpret this verse in this way. In the ancient church, the theologians, Origen and Chrysostom, they also understood it this way. They also wrote about this verse in this way. And even in the medieval church, the greatest theologian of Catholicism, Thomas Aquinas, agreed that the adverb alone is demanded by this context. Folks, the bad news of our court drama is that none of us, whether you're religious or not religious, none of us will get a right standing before God based on what we do. We're always going to fail to live up to other people's expectations, our own personal expectations, God's expectations. But the good news, the gospel according to St. Paul is that there is one who did fully and completely obey God's law. God in Christ has done everything he requires to reconcile sinners to himself. If you ever go on our website, that's one of our little slogans that we have right there on the front page. It is our hope. God in Christ has done everything he requires to reconcile sinners to himself. And because our righteousness is in Jesus, it will never be reduced. Where God says, hey, are you going to make a deposit this week? Are you going to try to fill that up? It will never be sullied by our sin, where we have to clean it and polish it and try to make it better. It will never be lost, because Jesus always lives. I had a lawyer, after our first service, come up to me and say, You know, Eric, in the law, in our current law system, you could never really be pronounced innocent. You're only pronounced not guilty. Because the way that our system works is it's whether or not the preponderance of guilt proves that you've done something beyond a reasonable doubt, but we can never completely say that someone is innocent. Friends, do you know what the verdict is that God pronounces over you? It's not just not guilty, it's that you are innocent. Innocent of all charges. And because that verdict rushes to you from God's heavenly throne, you know that you can be right with God. And all you need to do is hold on and reach out with the empty hand of faith saying, I believe. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, not just not guilty. But fully innocent? That just seems too good to be true if we really know our own hearts. If we really know the experiences we've had. If we really know the temptations that wait for us. So Father, help us to see again and again and again that we are justified freely by your grace in Christ. Pull our eyes off of ourselves and fix our hope on your Son, our Savior, in whose name we pray, amen.